Hey everyone, Paul here. Hope you all are enjoying your summer. You know, last episode, I posted a uh, recent sermon that I gave and I I typically don't post sermons to this podcast and channel, but a lot of you gave some really encouraging feedback and said, hey, I'd love to hear more. So what I'm doing is I'm pulling out um, some sermons here during the summer months. Uh, I'm in the middle of doing a complete office build and studio build um, right now. And so things are in shambles. It's hard to find the extra time outside of my normal duties as pastor and the work I do to uh, to find time right now to record new episodes, working on some other projects coming down the pipe in the future. And so what I thought I'd do is post another sermon and maybe throughout the summer, I might continue to post some past sermons that uh, I think maybe have some points of intersection overlap with the things that we've talked about around here. So today's sermon is about the parable of the secretly growing seed. It was recorded in July of 2022. I hope you find it helpful. And while I typically save this for the end of the podcast, I want to give an extra special thanks to the following supporters on Patreon. Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, Garth, Jean-Marc, Jesse, John-Marc, Josie, J-Tom, Justin, Lola, Luke, Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul, Rob, Sam, P, Selena, and Tim. Thank you all for your generous support. Now, I hope you enjoy this sermon on the parable of the secretly growing seed. Well, thanks for all of you being here on this uh, 4th of July weekend. I guess this is the group of people that don't have cabins, huh? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so you're stuck here with all of us together. Uh, you know, I'm not behind the pulpit as much as Pastor Jay and Pastor Joel, so you probably, uh, you know, you get to hear from Pastor Joel all of his memories of playing high school tennis, which is where I think, if you've listened to Pastor Joel all these years, occasionally he calls himself Sutton. I think that's probably from his high school tennis coach, because no one around here ever just calls him Sutton. And then, uh, you know, Jay will tell high school football stories and youth group hijinks, so... Um, one little thing you might want to know about me is that uh, I am a, I'm a bit of a, a fanatic when it comes to basketball. So basketball was my main sport growing up. Uh, I was All-State in high school, I got a basketball scholarship in college, and I, I still coach year-round. When I was a kid, there was a few movies I watched that I think kind of played an important role in my interest and formation for, uh, for being moderately obsessed about basketball. Uh, raise your hand if you're familiar with any of these movies. So one of them was Hoosiers. Anybody ever seen Hoosiers? Okay, good, good. All right, now this is more of a deep, really deep cut for basketball fans. There was another one that I really, really loved. It never was quite as popular as Hoosiers. The Pistol, the story of Pete Maravich. My mom and dad are here for the weekend, and so they raised their hand. <laughs> and um, so that's a really, that's a deep cut. There was another one that I really loved as a kid, too. Um, wasn't, it was kind of a strange movie because it was like part movie, part excuse for an extended highlight reel, and it was called Michael Jordan's Playground. Now, I'm from Detroit. My parents went from the weekend, for the holiday weekend from Detroit. So as like a bad boys era Pistons fan, I actually hated Michael Jordan. But because he was the best basketball player in the world, I wanted to learn his secrets, right? I loved basketball, so if I wanted to be that good, I wanted to figure out, well, what was Michael's secret? So you got this story 
um, Michael Jordan's playground, and it starts with this kid getting cut from his high school basketball team, and he's heartbroken and feeling defeated. He goes to a local street ball court and starts shooting around. He's trying to clear his mind. He's replaying his failures from his high school tryout in his brain, and you know he misses a shot, and the ball goes rolling down the court. And at the end of the court there, the ball rolls all the way down and stops at someone's uh, pair of Nike shoes. The camera pans up, and lo and behold, it's Michael Jordan there on the court. And uh, I don't know if this was intended or not. The movie kind of made it seem like this was some sort of like magical appearance of Michael Jordan just like manifesting on this court. It was an interesting scenario. So... Uh, Michael Jordan starts talking with this kid at the court, and uh, the kid shares his story about, oh, you know, MJ, I got cut, and now I don't think I'll ever play basketball again. And then MJ, Michael Jordan, tells him the story of how when he was a sophomore in high school, he got cut from his varsity team, too. Shocked, the kid is like, well, Michael Jordan... You know, you became the greatest basketball player ever. How did you do it? And then MJ goes on to tell the kid that it was by believing in himself and through his tireless hard work and determination that he got to where he was today. So the message I internalized as a kid watching Michael Jordan's playground was that uh, if I wanted to be like Mike, I got to have Michael Jordan's work ethic. I got to work harder than anybody else in the gym. And it's going to be through my work ethic and my determination that I can become someone great. I control my destiny. Well, you might not know this, but Michael Jordan actually has uh, some brothers. He's got one brother in particular that was better than him at basketball in high school. His brother's name was Larry, Larry Jordan. But despite Larry's work ethic and actually being better than Michael, Michael confessed like, hey, in high school, Larry would beat me one-on-one. Larry never played a minute in the NBA. The reason why? While Michael was six foot six, Larry was five foot eight. You can see it pictured there. Michael uh, once quipped in an interview to ESPN that if he, meaning his brother Larry, was six foot two, I would have been known as Larry's brother. Now, what part of Michael's hard work and determination gave him his height? Maybe it isn't all about our work and determination. Today we're in the Gospel of Mark, so I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We will also have the scripture passage on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you today. This summer we've been looking at parables in the Synoptic Gospels, parables of the kingdom of God that Jesus gave that we see recorded throughout the Gospel of Math, Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, just as a quick review, if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, what are parables? Parables are short stories which use metaphors from the common experiences of life and capture the attention of its listeners either through the vivid details of the story, <coughs> pardon me, or because something unexpected or strange happens in the story. Now the hard part about understanding Jesus' parables sometimes is that normal features of first century life in Judea are not normal features of life for us today. So sometimes we can't easily catch like the unexpected twist 
We can't catch the thing that's like unique about the parable because it's all strange to us today. Today's parable is another agrarian metaphor involving seeds, so let's look at it together. I'm actually going to read it from the NIV. I'm going to put it up there on the NIV. Your Bibles, <coughs> excuse me, in your pew are in the ESV. Um, we're going to do it in the NIV because the ESV just is a little like Bible language, uh, a little Bible lesson for you. The ESV tries to do like a more direct Greek to English word-for-word translation, which made sometimes these parables are a little bit trickier to read. So we're going to do the NIV. It takes a little bit of liberties with making it a little bit easier for us to understand in our vernacular today. Mark chapter 4, verse 26 to 29. He also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scattered seeds on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Now, if you actually look through Mark chapter 4, you'll actually see that there are two other parables about seeds that this one is sandwiched in between. In each of the parables, oh, thanks. What a great wife. This, is, uh, this week is our 16th anniversary. Just, I'll say that. Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks, son. Um, there's two other parables about seeds sandwiched. This one's sandwiched in between in Mark chapter 4. So we see throughout these parables about seeds that seeds typically represent in Jesus' parables like God's self-disclosure, God's revelation, his communication to humanity, or the word made flesh, Christ himself. You have to keep in mind, for the original audience, though, they have a burning question. So we can talk about the original audience in two senses. We've got the original audience that would have been hearing the parable, like the day Jesus gave it. But then we also have the original reading audience of Mark's gospel. And so we're going to keep both of those two original audiences in mind and figure out, well, what does it mean for them and them before we figure out what it means for us today. And you have to realize that the original audience has a burning question in their minds. They've been hearing prophecies about a coming righteous rule of God, a kingdom of God, and a Messiah who's going to bring that rule about. And so their burning question that they have is, well, how is this kingdom, how is this rule of God going to come? Because they're looking around the world and they're going, Caesar still seems to be Lord. We're still in bondage. How is this rule of God all going to play out? Maybe it's going to come like a war horse or a mighty chariot. Maybe it's going to come like thunder and lightning from heaven and bam, everything, all evil will be defeated and God's righteous rule and reign will be established in a moment. But then time and time again, Jesus, he tells these parables and then instead of him being like a lightning bolt from heaven, Jesus goes, okay, you know what the rule of God is going to be like? You know how it's going to go down? It's going to go down like this. You ready for this? The rule of God is like a farmer scattering seed. All right, Jesus. When I picture what the kingdom of God or an empire of God's rule might look like, what it might take to bring it about. 
<coughs> excuse me, a seed isn't the first thing that I imagine. The theologian Robert Capon puts it like this, how odd, and describing how odd it is that a seed would be used as a, a metaphor for the kingdom of God. He writes this, and you can see this quote up on the screen. First of all, seeds are disproportionately small compared with what they eventually produce. In the case of herbs, for some, which for some reason Jesus took special delight in, they are in fact almost ridiculously small. Anyone who has planted thyme or savory knows the strange sensation of practically losing sight of the seed after it has been dropped into the furrow. You might as well have sown nothing for all you can observe. Of course, the small, unassuming nature of a seed is important to this parable, but it's important to all the parables that involve seeds. In this particular parable, there's another feature, though, that we want to focus in on. It's a feature of how the seed works and the man's relation, the farmer's relation to the seed. What is his role in relationship to the seed that's important? So let's look back again at verse 27. Look back again at verse 27, and this is kind of where you see the unexpected twist that we look for in parables. Oh, great. Good reading. That was really good. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. Okay, aside from initially planting the seed, the man here has done nothing to cause the seed to grow. Which, like anybody with even a cursory knowledge of farming, anybody do any gardening in their backyard, a little tinkering around, a little green thumb, <clears throat> anybody that's done even the most basic gardening knows you should probably at least get out and water it, you know, after you plant the seed. Maybe give it some fertilizer, nudge it along. But this guy's like clueless almost, right? Whether he sleeps or gets up to do any of the proper work you should do to help the seed grow, the seed just grows, and it actually says he doesn't know how. Which isn't like people weren't stupid in the first century. Their lives depended on farming. It was like, well, they knew a few things about how it grew. Remember how I mentioned earlier, we're trying to look for the point of the parable. We're looking for a strange or unusual feature that would catch the audience's attention. Well, this is one of those things that's going to catch the audience's attention. In an ancient agrarian world, again, people aren't clueless about how seeds grow. In a previous parable in this chapter, if you looked earlier, there's some important details about making sure how you get the seal, seed in the right kind of soil. That was important. Keep in mind, this isn't good advice. Parables aren't like good advice on how to be a farmer. That's not the point Jesus is getting at. In some sort of way, in a kind of inverted way, it actually is the point. God's working in the world. This is one of the key features of this parable. God's working in the world to bring about the kingdom of God and to set the world right is not dependent on this man's effort. The destiny of the seed wasn't conditional on him getting everything right. It wasn't the Michael Jordan, pure hard work, determination, and effort. It wasn't simply Michael Jordan outworking everybody on the planet. It was Michael Jordan growing to six foot six outside of his control. It was grace. Grace beyond our control is working behind the scenes. Now, the ancient religions of Israel's neighbors all acknowledge there were forces at work beyond human control. 
You had like the Canaanites, the Egyptians, you had the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods. And you can kind of see if you look at these ancient religions around Israel, you can see these ancient peoples, they're, they're trying to make sense of what we might call forces of nature. They understand that you could plant seed, you could properly care for the soil, but guess what? If you weren't getting rain or sunshine, your seed wasn't growing. So, who controlled the rain and the sunshine? That was a question that ancient people had. I control planting. Who controls these things that are beyond my control? And there has to be someone or something that controls it, right? And they seem actually pretty fickle. Like we Minnesotans would kind of agree with that, right? The rain and the sunshine seems pretty fickle, pretty unpredictable. And frankly, if your life depends on the, the soil and the seed that you've put into the soil, you can't live with the fickleness of these forces of nature. So you can see that throughout pagan mythologies, you see like people assigning gods to the sun god, the rain god. What are they doing? They're, they're trying to figure out what is the thing beyond the thing that's beyond my control. So maybe there is a way. Maybe there's a way we can make whoever controls the rain and sun happy <coughs> so that they'll give us what we need, right? Maybe we can appease these gods somehow. And that's actually how a complex system of sacrifices work. At the heart of the pagan sacrificial system is this promise. You can actually gain control over these things that are outside of your control. Jesus in this parable confronts the notion that the kingdom of God is going to be brought about through human formulas for control. Make no mistake about it. Like We are certainly invited to participate in God's rule. And our participation actually does affect outcomes. So this isn't fatalism. We're not talking about determinism here, that you're just fated to whatever happens, happens, right? But we want to make this really, really clear. We can affect outcomes in the kingdom of God, but we do not control them. And there's a huge difference between those two. You see, in Jesus' day, in the first century, you had all of these competing visions for what the world should look like. The Pharisees had their vision of the world. Sadducees had their vision. A group called the Zealots had their own vision. The Romans had their own vision. Now it's easy for us today, we can look back and go, man, I'm so glad the like, ultra-conservative and legalistic Pharisees, they didn't get their vision of the world to happen. And we can look back and go, boy, I'm really glad the Romans' vision of the world, like, that didn't last forever. But I wonder how hard it might be for us to look at the way we might want the world to turn out and go, gosh, I wonder if it would be worse if I controlled the world, if I got my vision of the world to happen. Again, Jesus, in this parable, he's not encouraging, like, fatalistic apathy about how the world turns out. But what he is doing here, he's addressing our self-righteous delusion that if we just did everything right, we could bring about a perfect utopia. He's calling us to trust him, to relinquish our, self, our sense of control and release our anxieties about how this is all gonna turn out into his grace. I'm not gonna lie to you, 
doing this, trusting that this nearly invisible seed of the kingdom of God is growing day and night without you is hard, especially if maybe some of you, like me, kind of pride yourself on being this sort of like Michael Jordan, high achiever type. But even for those of you that are like, I pull myself up by my own bootstraps, you have to just take a moment and step back from that mindset and begin to realize like, there are so many ways grace beyond your control has sustained you, has held you together, and has propelled you. It gave you that job opportunity. It gave you the health. It kept you away from, you know, X, Y, and Z that would have detoured you from the path. Now, just by a show of hands in here, how many of you are currently married? How many people in here are currently married? Okay. Now, keep your hand up if you got married in your 20s or younger, okay? All right, that's a decent percentage of you. Now, I got, we just confessed, my wife and I, this, was, uh, this would be our 16th anniversary this week. You can put your hands down. I mean, nobody told you that that was a pretty dumb idea getting married that young, right? <laughs> Let's just be honest. Like, you went into that thing, you could maybe have read some books, you did some marriage, pre-marriage counseling, you saw other people that were married, and you were like, we got this thing, Right? And then you got into it, and you're like, what did I get myself into, right? You didn't have a clue. There is nobody that could have told you exactly how to do your particular marriage, right? Nobody could explain it to you. There'd be no way of predicting when you got into it, right? Like, you're 19, 20, 21. You don't know how the world works. You don't know how this marriage thing is going to work. You couldn't predict whether or not you'd endure financial hardship, whether you'd have good or bad health. You'd have no way of predicting whether or not you'd be living through a pandemic, both of you working from home while you're trying to homeschool kids. (laughs) Nobody braced you for that one, right? And let's talk about kids. For those of you that have children, I mean, you can do your due diligence. You can read good parenting books, you know. You can learn from your parents' examples, the good, the bad. you got a good church community around you. But let's be honest here. I don't want to let kids in on this little secret, but let's be honest. We're all just kind of making it up as we go, right? I mean, we can do our best at this thing, but your kids will figure this out when they get to be married and have kids. They're like, there isn't an instruction manual for this thing. My point being, is that in these like key features of our life, you could never collect all of the necessary data points, plug them into some sort of marriage or parenting equation, and come out with a utopian future that's perfectly within your control. It's impossible. The factors are beyond your comprehension. It's like in the end of the book of Job, where God confronts Job, right? And I'm paraphrasing here. I'm taking some liberties here. But God confronts Job, and he's like, Job, do you really think you could figure out this whole thing yourself? Like, did I consult you when I created reality? You think you could have done this job? You know, look at that big Godzilla-looking creature we call Leviathan. You think you can put a hook in its nose and tame that monster? You can't do that. You have limits, inherent limits as a human being. And that brings us moves us into the second major point 
of this parable. It's a, it's a theme we, we regularly see throughout parables involving seeds. This is our second big idea today. Play the long game of the kingdom of God where the slow, hidden work of grace ultimately wins out. Much of the trouble that people had in Jesus' day with Jesus and Jesus' vision for what his rule and reign was going to look like was that they had a very different picture for how things should be set right, including the timetable for when those things should be set right and accomplished. People were tired of living under Roman oppression. They were tired of the, the religious leaders that they felt were oppressing them. They were tired of the brokenness. They were ready for an immediate revolution in that first century. One of those noticeable, uh, notable groups that was ready for a revolution right away were the Zealots. The Zealots were fed up with Roman oppression and collusion between Jewish religious authorities and political elites and this oppressive empire, and they wanted to take immediate action to solve the problem. The Zealots were known, they would do this, um, and you can see, I think, a little, little picture of one of them, you know, up there, I don't know how accurate it is, but the, the Zealots would take daggers, they were known for doing this, and they would hide daggers in their cloaks, and they would go into large crowds where there would be Romans or Roman sympathizers, and they would pack themselves, you know, shoulder to shoulder, maybe like if you go see some 4th of July fireworks and you're trying to get to the fireworks, how crowded that is, they get in a crowd of people, they have this dagger in their cloak, they pull it out, and they'd stab a Roman or a Roman sympathizer, they'd slip it back in their cloak, and they'd walk away and be like, who killed this person? Who stabbed this person? You know, the, Rome, the zealots were like a, like a terrorist group. And uh, they, they didn't have any patience for Roman sympathizers. Now, we actually know that w at least one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot. His name was Simon the Zealot. And Jesus is from Nazareth, which is a place known for rebellious troublemakers. So you can see why some might suspect maybe this Jesus from Nazareth, this Messiah, he's got a zealot hanging out with him. Maybe this is going to be an immediate violent revolution, and it might have excited some folks. But here's again, here's again where we brush up against like the human limitations of our foresight. We might be able to play chess and you know map out a few moves in advance, but we're not good at mapping out the effects of our decisions decades, centuries in advance. We can't properly assess the ramifications. We're not good at it. Within one generation of Jesus' death and resurrection, zealots actually did try to actualize their vision of the kingdom of God with a violent revolution that pitted them against both the Romans and the Sadducees. The end result, and you can still see it pictured up there, the end result was the Romans firing back with a violent destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, where the ancient historian Josephus reported over one million people were killed. Rebels that weren't killed were sold off into slavery. Nice move, zealots. It was a horrific, horrific scene. But this is where... This is what happens when we attempt to impose our vision of the world detached from grace onto the world. Because of our limitations, because we can't possibly collect all the necessary data, calculate the perfect outcomes, and because of our sinful predispositions that we've inherited as fallen humans, 
We have this propensity to impose our vision of the world in a way that's flawed, it's broken, and it's typically self-centered. So often we rush to solve a short-term problem like the zealots were doing, like we got to get rid of these Romans, and then we make 10 new long-term problems along the way. For the original audience reading Mark's gospel in the first century, so when Mark's gospel is released, I mean, they didn't have like a book tour, right? But when Mark's gospel is finally circulated into the Christian community, it's probably at least a generation after Jesus' death and resurrection. We're looking probably sometime around in the, in the 60s, AD 60, in the mid to late 60s. When that is being released, we're talking about a generation after Jesus' resurrection, Caesar still looks like he's Lord. It's a problem, right? It's a problem for those reading these stories for the first time. And, and they're trying to trust that the rule of God inaugurated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is actually somehow going to blossom into the full realization that was difficult for them to trust because Christians at that point were enduring terrible persecution and martyrdom. Their claims going around saying Jesus is Lord seemed like nonsense. And they were put to test in ways I don't think we as like predominantly middle class, you know, Midwestern Americans can even comprehend. Here's one example. I've got a picture up on the screen. Um, this is a painting. I'm not going to try to pronounce the, um, the artist's name, but this painting was done in the 19th century. And it's depicting a scene uh, that actually happened in the first century under the rule of Nero. Emperor Nero would have these garden parties. And as you can see up there, there are people actually attached or fastened to the top of those stakes, and those are Christians. And at his garden parties, he would sit around with his friends and drink his wine, and they'd light Christians on fire as torches in their garden parties. Be hard for you if you're living through that. Maybe you had a family member or someone in your church community get killed that way, and you're going like, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Lord. You're like, really? Are you sure? Because look what's going on still. And how much would you be willing to risk this Jesus is Lord claim when you have to face the possibility of that? Would you risk your life? Could you even potentially risk your life, go to the grave like that, and still trust that the seed of the kingdom of God that you had not yet seen fully grow to a harvest was still one day going to reach the point of harvest as the, as the community saw brothers and sisters go to the grave before that final setting right, what hope did they cling to? What hope is there in the face of this? It was the radical hope of the resurrection. The promise that in the end, God's good vision for the world, a vision made manifest in the ministry of Jesus, would come to pass. Again, this parable that we're looking at it's not a license for indifference, passivity, or apathy. There are plenty of other parables that we have covered or will cover this summer that call disciples of the way of Jesus to be things like faithful stewards with what they've been entrusted with. But in this parable, we're specifically reminded, you and I, we ain't driving the bus to glory. We're passengers. The way of grace when that way of grace feels narrow and scary, though, where we can't see where it's immediately going, in those moments, we might be tempted to treat Jesus like he's some pagan god, 
that we can use to gain control of our lives again. We might anxiously pray formulaic prayers that we read in supposedly Christian books that tell us that Jesus will give us all the blessings and the control we want over our lives if we just pray this prayer the specific way. We might come to church for an hour, but spend the rest of our week going like, how do I get my vision of the world to happen? How do I get my political vision of the world to happen? And we could come in here, we can listen to sermons, and then we could go home and watch you know, 10 hours of YouTube or cable news for whatever our political persuasion is, for all these talking heads telling you, this is how the right working of the world should work, and we consume that stuff. And you know what? We can do things like that, and sometimes, it even looks like people who do that sort of stuff, they're like, I figured out the formula to control all the outcomes. Sometimes it even looks like they're working in the short term. For example, I want you to just think about if you were a German in June of 1940, look at this headline on the screen. Hitler conquered Paris, France, in June of 1940. If you're around during that time, some of you were, maybe, you're probably thinking to yourself, Hitler's winning this thing, right? But winning is not determined by who's got the lead in the first quarter or halftime. It's who's got the lead at the final horn. Obviously, we know the rest of the story. Hitler doesn't win, but in that moment, it looked like it. We can't be short-sighted. We can't be short-sighted in thinking these short-circuiting formulas for control are going to give us the ideal vision, this utopian vision of the world that we have in our heads. We need to trust in the slow work of grace. Do you trust that God is going to have his way in the end? Do you? It's a difficult question. If you do, then I want to encourage you. Play the long game of following the rhythms of grace and allow yourself to get swept up in the movements of God's will. You can let go of anxiously trying to control and manage all of the outcomes. You can drop your utopian vision of life because honestly, let's all confess this, we don't know what's best for ourselves. I don't have a clue what's best for me, much less the whole world. How ridiculous is that? What if God is inviting you into a project that you might not see completed in your lifetime? And church, I, I think we really need to adjust some of our ways of thinking about this. We live in a culture that promises us instant gratification, a microwavable faith. But I want to shake that up a bit and call us to a higher vision. And I think this is something Christians long before us maybe had a better grasp of that we need to reclaim. You know, something happened, maybe some of you even came to faith in Jesus during this, during this time period, but as of late, and Jay mentioned, Pastor Jay mentioned this last week, you know, there's kind of been over the last 50 years this sort of like heightened sense of apocalyptic visions of the world and, you know, is Jesus coming back in 1988 or, you know, and I think a lot of that stuff, maybe some of you even came to faith because you thought, man, what if Jesus comes back in my lifetime? And we need to keep that in the forefront of our thoughts. But 
There was also, for generations, Christians that thought, you know, it could be. But as Pastor Jay said last week, Jesus makes it really, really clear. No one knows the day or the hour. I'm just going to throw this out here. Statistically, if we were just, you know, kind of map out how short your life is and how long, you know, since Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, I'd say statistically the odds are probably, like, he might not come in your lifetime. So what we need to have is a vision for beyond our own lives, beyond the lives of our children, beyond the lives of our grandchildren. This church has been in existence for almost 140 years. And God willing, it'll continue for another 140 if Christ, if Christ tarries. So what I want to encourage you to do is to get a better grasp of a vision that Christians once had. And to do this, I want to throw out an illustration. I want you to consider one of the most beautiful cathedrals in the world. This cathedral resides in Cologne, Germany. Look at that. I mean, beautiful, beautiful building. Construction on that cathedral, it began in the 13th century. And it didn't finish. They did not complete the cathedral until the 19th century. They were working on that cathedral for 600 years. It took 600 years for that church to be completed. Now, I want you to imagine being on the initial construction crew for this project, knowing that it wasn't going to be completed in your lifetime or your children's lifetime or your grandchildren's lifetime, and yet you still give yourself to this project. I want you to use that as an illustration to consider what God is calling us to do. God is calling us to trust him as the architect and engineer of the best possible vision for the world. And he's inviting us to say yes to this long, slow work of grace and trust that he's building something with our lives that's even more beautiful than we could possibly imagine. Before we go into communion this morning, I want to invite you to stand, and um, we're going to sing together, and we're going to sing without much musical accompaniment. I want to invite us to open up our hearts to those rhythms of grace, and to realize that it's grace that precedes us, it's grace that sustains us, it's grace that propels us, and I want to invite you to sing, we don't sing this like every week, I can't even remember the last time we sung this, we're going to sing Amazing Grace. Dangers, toils, and snares. 
Then when 